we asked ourselves, what if we lined up some of the world's top minds in science, astronomy, technology, academia, and futurism, and got them to ponder some of the most popular what-ifs? This is What If Discussed. Here are Teddy Wilson and Richard Garner. Welcome to another episode of What If Discussed. I'm Teddy Wilson. And I'm Richard Garner. Our question today, what if we settled on the moon? And you know, it strikes me as, as time goes on and as, as the race to get back to the moon heats up between national governments and of course now with private companies and tech giants in the mix, this question is becoming more and more relevant and is kind of something we should be pondering now because it seems like it's just around the corner, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's, uh, you know, I, I find myself saying more often than not these days that you know, we're living in a sci-fi movie now. Like everything that seemed like wildly ahead of us is now, oh, it's happening tomorrow. Like, or sorry, it's actually already happening. And this return to the moon, but not return to the moon as a sort of a singular one-off, but as a permanent settlement is not just, again, theoretical at this point. There's people planning, there's people designing, there's people innovating, there's people um, lawyering about it, as as we will talk about throughout this show, to figure all the logistics out. But the one thing that seems for sure is we're going, and, and we're going back. And it's interesting because I remember being a kid back in in history class and, and thinking, you know, when you'd read about all these, you know, Marco Polos and Carche, and I'm not going to mention Columbus because really he got it wrong, but you know what I mean. Like the yeah. explorers that were out there and the idea of seeking and going out and exploring these new frontiers, which to them might as well have been the moon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they literally didn't know, in some cases thought they were going off a flat earth and ran into a big piece of land. It was and the I, unknown or the undiscovered country. And they were still going, sign me up to go. Yeah. And I remember thinking, ah, it's too bad. There's nothing left to find here on this planet. And I'm sure there is. But now we find ourselves at, you know, as we go go into the second decade of the 21st century, that this exploration of, you know, the moon, our solar system, our galaxy, it's on like Donkey Kong. It's on like Donkey Kong, not to mention our oceans here on Earth, yes. too, which is a whole other <laughs> discussion. Uh, but you're right. It is on now. And, you know, something I want to ask our guest later on, and it's a fantastic guest we have lined up for, for this episode, is why haven't we been back? Why haven't we been back since uh, it was Apollo 17 was the last time in the early 70s we were there? Why haven't we been back? And why now does there seem to be this impetus uh, from multiple different parties and stakeholders to get back? I'm going to be intrigued to hear the answer to that question. Well, the one thing that we know, you know, over the last X amount of time is that people like uh, Stephen Hawking have talked about, the, the late, great Stephen Hawking, talked about the need to start, not, not the desire to, the need to start looking at off-planet solutions is something that we should be doing. And I think that's something we want to talk about today too, because there are incentives. There are incentives that are financial. There are incentives that are um, society-driven. But in the end, I, I suspect at some point we're going to want to have a plan B. So you're not talking about the notion of exploration for exploration's sake. You're talking about almost having a, a backup plan, planetarily speaking. And like 
I am talking about it, but I'm talking about it because somebody like Stephen Hawking was talking about it. Well, as we said, we got a great guest lined up later in the show, Alex Hall. She is one of the top people to talk about on this subject because she's been pondering the notion of settling on the moon for a long time, including with her pioneering work at Google's Lunar X Prize. She's coming up shortly, but first let's dive a little deeper into this question. What if we settled on the moon? Imagine living on the moon. You'd have the best view of Earth. You'd enjoy bouncing around in zero gravity and living your life as an astronaut explorer. Doesn't that sound nice? Except living on the moon won't be like this at all. So, what would it be like to actually live on the moon? Who will establish a base first? And why would moon dust be your biggest problem? This is What If, and here's what would happen if we settled on the moon. Let's make this clear. Just like America did in 1969, humans will land on the moon again in the next decade. Only this time, it's expected to be more permanent. What's less clear is exactly which country will be the first to land and establish a base. China, the USA, Russia, and India are all making strong efforts to get there. But there are also private companies, including SpaceX and Blue Origin, that have a lot more money to spend on going to the moon. But wait, why exactly are these companies doing this in the first place? Apart from exploring the galaxy and breaking new ground, there's another huge reason these groups all want to be the first to create a base on the moon. And that reason is money. The moon is chock full of different resources. It has gold, silver, and titanium in it. The idea here is to mine these precious resources and send them back to Earth. Another resource the moon has is helium-3. It's incredibly rare here on Earth, but not on the moon. That's because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, and helium-3 comes from the sun's radiation. Over billions of years, the moon has been absorbing this chemical and Lucky for us, it can be used for energy. Helium-3 is so powerful that just 100 kilograms of it could power the city of Dallas, Texas for an entire year. Oh, and it's also worth a cool $40,000 for just 28 grams of the stuff. With these resources holding incredible value, it's no secret these countries and companies want to be the first to establish a base. But even if they do, they won't really own it. Back in 1967, the United Nations decided that no one can really own space. This has the potential to cause huge tensions between various nations, possibly leading to war. But enough about all that drama. You are on the moon. So, how exactly are you going to live here? Assuming we get to the moon in one piece, which is already an incredibly difficult task on its own, you'll then have to worry about establishing a base. Experts suggest that we live on the moon's south pole, as it gets the most consistent amount of sunlight. There are also massive fields of ice that we'll be able to harvest. Some other places on the moon don't get any sunlight for nearly a month at a time. Luckily, you'll have robots to help you establish a base. There are many different ways they'll be able to help. One includes using moon soil to construct bricks and configuring them in a dome-like fashion. Sort of like a moon glue. 
This would make traveling to the moon a lot cheaper, as we wouldn't have to bring everything from Earth to make our base. But don't expect this base to be glamorous. It'll most likely be several meters underground to protect you from the sun's radiation. And as for what you'll eat? Well, it'll be your standard dry astronaut food. The good news is that you should be able to grow some carrots and tomatoes. A 2014 Dutch study found that it's possible using soil on the moon. And what would you drink? Unfortunately, quite a lot of it will be your recycled pee as drinking water won't be available on the moon and it would be too heavy to ship there. Another thing you'll need to seriously worry about is moon dust. This magnetic dust gets everywhere. It'll get on your suit and even on your skin. Previous astronauts have had allergic reactions to it. It's also slightly sharp, so accidentally swallowing any would be a huge problem. But it's not just humans who need to worry about moon dust. It can get into machines as well, causing them to overheat. Before we settle on the moon, this is one massive problem we'll need to solve. All these issues beg the question, would you ever really want to be the first to settle on the moon? You'd most likely spend your time mining and just surviving with little time to run around in low gravity. And besides, we all know that going here is just our first baby step to get to Mars. So maybe you should just wait for that. That sounds like a story for another What If. Well, joining us now to dive into this question even further, the man with perhaps the most appropriate name to discuss <laughs> this question, What If We Settled on the Moon, senior researcher from What If, Jay Moon. Jay, how are you? I'm good, thanks. And I, I really should let you know that Moon is my stage name. It's your stage name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. yeah. Sorry, I'm actually Jay Smith. But it just doesn't have the same ring. I was going to say Jay Mars, maybe. Yeah, well, for then that's a what if for another day. <laughs> well played, sir. Well, my friends just call me Jay Laloon. So Jay we Laloon. I love it. Excellent. Yeah. So, Jay, when you were researching this video, what really threw you for a loop the most? What surprised you most about the challenges of establishing a settlement on the moon. Well, when we're discussing a topic like this, I mean, it's so, there's so much going on and we're talking about, I mean, it's, it's an impressive feat to get to the moon. It's amazing. You know, what we did back with the Apollo program, I, it was astounding what we were able to accomplish with that. But moving forward and to, a, you know, a great extent back then, there's this one little wrench in the works that you just don't even think about it, and it's it's dust. Moon dust. It's the moon dust. It's that stuff you get up there, and it's everywhere, and it gets into everything. So how challenging would the moon dust be in terms of establishing a settlement up there? Well, you know, again, going back to the Apollo program, they were literally having to vacuum this stuff off of them. They were carrying, they were armed with brushes to take moon dust off them, to get it off their suits because it would just get caked on. It's like magnetic. It sticks to everything. So it just, there's no escaping it. So it's not just a matter of it being so fine and being so abundant. The magnetic part, because I was wondering, like, obviously, whatever settlement you'd have, you'd have, you know, obviously tons of machinery, but you'd have a lot of computer equipment, a lot of servers, a lot of that. Everything we need to get to where we need to be up there is at risk because of moon dust. And it's going to have some sort of metal components, therefore magnetic it's, moon dust. Yeah. So that is a problem. And I'm guessing not one they've solved yet. 
it's still a work in progress, but even, you know, you go back to, I believe it was 2014, and, and China landed a rover on the moon, which got taken out, they think, by moon dust. It got clogged. It, really? It got stopped in its tracks. And that's what they think is what happened to it. And that's so, just a rover. Or or that's the engineers looking for an excuse because somebody forgot to put a battery in. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. A very small scale, but, you know, expand on that. And it's one of, again, so simple, but it could be the, the thing that maybe, if nothing else, just jumps the budget up by a trillion or so. <laughs> well, let, let's flip to something that could could help the budget by bringing in potential revenue. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, resources that could be exploited on the moon. Talk to us a bit about helium-3. Well, helium-3 is is one of these things where if you, if you take it on Earth, I mean, there's this nuclear component to it. It's incredibly expensive stuff, but it's everywhere uh, on the moon. Um, you know, the upside of, of it being there is that we can use it back here. You know, the moon has one-sixth the gravity of Earth. So actually shipping it from the moon to Earth technically wouldn't be as complicated as shipping it from Earth to the moon ah. because of the whole gravitational factors and things like that. So we have that going on. But helium-3H3, as you'll sometimes see it being called, um, it is one of those items where... It can just be used for everything. It can be used up there. But the problem becomes whether or not we will have the means to be able to process it the way it needs to be processed to put it to use. So we may very well see us shipping H3 back home, processing it, shipping it back to the moon for some time to come. Now, that does open the door to you know, vital resources, you know, the stuff going for $40,000 an ounce kind of thing. It's, it's, it's pricey. That's the incentive but, right but there. But when there's money, if, you know, it's, uh, if there's money to be made. If I remember correctly, this was the same conversation initially that happened uh, on Pandora around unobtainium. I remember they, they was... In the Avatar it, film. Oh, sorry, it's sorry. That Avatar. was in Avatar. That's right. Not a real... Not, thing. no, sorry. Just to confuse things. Uh, <laughs> but to that point, because it is an interesting bridge or segue to something that a lot of people talk about because the plan long-term would be to not only, you know, explore the rest of the solar system, move beyond this solar system into the galaxy. So the moon and settling on the moon, less about a, let's say, a new human colony, more about a jumping off point to go to Mars, for instance. How much of that is driving the, the let's say, the progress and the momentum right now? Well, for, unfortunately for the moon, I mean, we, we would love to get lots of credit here. We want to, you know, habitate the moon. European Space Agency is trying to get 10 astronauts up there by 2030. And they would be coming and going six-month rotation, which would be the longest we've had people on the moon for, uh, you know, consistently straight through without a break. But the moon right now is being looked at as the diving board, where we just get it set up enough that we can then use it as the platform and off we go to Mars from there, which is which is fine. But even for the, the crews that are going to have to be there to make that happen, I mean, we still have to figure out where they're going to live. Are they going to live on the surface? Are they going to live under the surface? Because if they're on the surface, they've got radiation to deal with. Uh, we still have the, the gravity factor. You know, science fiction, everybody can walk around no problem. 
can we really have people up there floating nonstop in trying to make this happen? What do we do with all of the gear? How how do we make all of this work? With what that? do we like, eat? What do we eat? How I do mean, we eat? I mean, can we can we invent anti gravity? Do we have to bring that into the picture for this to really work? Where we have antimatter working against the gravitational pull that keeps people grounded. I, I mean, are we going to be eating packets of of mac and cheese? heated up? Are we going to be having to drink? I mean, right now, they're talking about having to take your your urine and basically tweak it a little bit, filter out the water, and that's what you're going to be drinking. I'm out. So, so that was I mean, it? That was, that's, that's it for me. So Thank it, you. I'm if, intrigued. If, if that's what they're doing for water, imagine what tequila comes from. Good. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's wild. That's wild stuff. Did you get a sense in thinking about this and, and in researching it? Uh, whether there are uh, whether there's materials on the moon uh, that we would be able to fashion into other things into building materials, or would we need to bring all of the building materials up there? In order to make this work, we would have to find a way to be able to to use the resources that are there. I mean, we could take the dust idea that they're right now working on ways that that can be made into bricks things like that really so they can actually that's what they'll maybe be making some of the the, the the, the structures out of things like that. But again, you think of what we have on Earth for our space programs. You look at a launch pad, you look at the basics, try to visualize that on the moon. And we are going to have to bring a lot from Earth. Mm -hmm. But in order to make this work, I mean, besides helium-3, we've got gold up there, we've got titanium up there. There are other materials. Mm -hmm. But I would say probably for at least the first 50 years, we'd still be shuttling back and forth, mm. you know, between the two. Well, a fascinating chat, Jay, or we should more appropriately call you in this context, Mr. Moon. Yeah. I prefer that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being Perhaps here. Perhaps the first mayor. If you will. Of the moon. Of the moon. The governor of the moon. Yes. If the name is all it takes, I guess I'm in. Well, yeah. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Moon. And after the break, we'll be joined by someone at the global forefront of the movement to take us back to the moon and to one day establish permanent settlement there. Alex Hall will be our guest. Coming up. Hey, guys, we'll be back to the episode in just a sec. But I just want to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode, your friends might enjoy it, too. So take a screenshot now or screen record your favorite part of the podcast and share it to your Instagram stories and tag us at whatif.show. Help us make science accessible to everyone. Now, back to What If Discussed. From a very young age, Alexandra Hall has dreamt of becoming an astronaut. This astrophysicist headed up Google's Lunar X Prize in 2011. No longer with Google's $30 million race back to the moon, Hall is still very active in programs around space exploration and much more. She offers great insight into the competition around going back and settling on the moon from privately funded enterprise, since she's lived that experience. Today's question, what if we settled on the moon? And joining us to discuss is Alex Hall, former senior director of the $30 million Google Lunar X Prize. Alex, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Looking forward to it. Um, there's so much to talk about here, but we'd like to actually start with a quote from you. And that quote is, and I quote, I believe that solving today's global challenges requires us to think beyond that which is just outside our window. Potential solutions to the many problems close to home exist with the development of resources in space. So A, is that quote accurate? And B, can you dive a little bit further into that for us? 
Uh, yes, that quote is absolutely accurate. Um, I have always believed that if you think beyond what we know today and you start to think about how you might solve a problem, even if the technology might not quite yet be there, you can often come up with um, a different approach, something that might allow you to have an aha moment and to break through a barrier. And sometimes that requires setting particular goals or really audacious goals. Um, and of course, that's, that's what XPRIZE has always been about. It's what the Google Lunar XPRIZE was about. Well, it's an interesting word to use there, audacious, because I, I certainly at, at one point of our even recent history, settling on the moon would have seemed wildly ambitious, perhaps, and even a bit sci-fi or, or in your words, audacious. It feels, I don't want to say imminent, but it certainly feels less unlikely as we go forward. But before we get into the likelihood and the whens and the hows, let's just start with the, the thesis question, if you will. What if we settled on the moon, Alex? What, what do you think that sort of entails uh, from a 30,000-foot perspective? It's a really, really great question um, because as soon as you start thinking about what it means to settle somewhere, you then have to start thinking about, well, what is a settlement? You know, what constitutes a settlement? And certainly um, many people have thought about this, but have thought about it from the point of view of, of when, you know, the US was settled, you know, when particularly when people came across from, from the East Coast to the West Coast and started to create uh, businesses started to create um, resources, started to find ways to, to make money and to exist. And so I think it's interesting to approach the what if question from the point of view of thinking about this as a, as a settlement and thinking about all of the things that go into that um, from the governance, from the businesses, from uh, how the, the people interact with each other, um, even down to you know, the languages that they speak and the societal norms that they adopt. I, I think that there's just so many facets to explore um, on the question, what if we, we settled the moon, that you know, quite literally we could be here for weeks. Um, however, to try and bring it down to just one or two um, fascinating pieces, um, what I think is interesting at this point in history now is that we do have the technology to get to the moon, to stay on the moon for at least some pretty extended periods of time. And the amount of money that it would take to do that is kind of scarily within the realm of some private individuals. Which we're seeing now, obviously. I mean, the, the discussion is happening, it seems, more in the private sector than it is at government levels these days. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, most famously, we have Elon Musk's SpaceX or Jeff Bezos's um, Blue Origin. Of course, you worked with the uh, Google Lunar X Prize, uh, known around the world and doing some, some great and really pioneering work. Uh, NASA has, of course, their Project Artemis. They want to try to get U.S. astronauts back to the moon by 2024. But to me, that also begs the question, Alex, you know, Humans first stepped foot on the moon in, in 1969, but then the last time was with Apollo 17 in 1972, I believe. So it does beg the question, why have we not been back in over 45 years? There are many reasons that we haven't been back to the moon. And the, the primary reason, I, I believe, is that it politically wasn't a goal that uh, any country had in mind. Um, when the US decided to go to the moon, obviously it was in the middle of the Cold War, it was a space race and, and having gotten to the moon and demonstrated that they could get there first, 
that sort of took the wind out of the sails and the scientific impetus for continuing to go to the moon just simply uh, wasn't there in terms of looking at what it was going to cost to keep missions going to the moon. And so, you know, that's generally accepted as the reason that we scaled back and started to look at, well, how can we use space that is, is much closer to the Earth, um, near Earth uh, orbits and, and out to geostationary orbit? And how might we use uh, just that sort of first stepping stone rather than going to the moon? And really, that's the way that it stayed, obviously, for more than 50 years um, until we've recently seen political impetus again, and this case, the, the Chinese pushing very hard to put things on the surface of the moon and other countries also taking part, um, India, of course, notably, and then with the attempt by the uh, former Google Lunar X Prize Israeli team to also put a lander on the moon. Um, you know, we've seen a resurgence in interest. And, and obviously you touched on some of the more, you know, pressing and immediate logistical issues, uh, obviously, government will all the all the very difficult aspects of 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 settling. Which, again, to your point, we hadn't really done, and feels like most of the world here is settled. So it brings a lot of those questions into, uh, you know, puts them on the table, so to speak. But let's say, for instance, uh, for the sake of this conversation, we've done all of those things, and let's say we figured all of that out. What excites you most about? the prospect once it's, once it's fully uh, realized and, and let's say even a few years down the line, what, what excites you the most about what that can lead to? What excites me about putting a settlement on the moon is the fact that that group of, of people is going to evolve as a settlement and is going to develop ways of dealing with issues that they come across on a day-to-day -day basis that will be constrained by their access to resources. They can't just pop down the road to you know, the nearest hardware store and pick something up. And that is necessarily going to involve a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation. And so I think that while the settlement on the moon will be amazing in its own right from sociological point of view, psychological point of view, and technological point of view, the benefits that will come back to Earth will be the solving, the creativity in solving problems um, because of the constraints that they have on the moon that then we can look at back on Earth and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, if we can solve this resource problem on the moon using only these things, can't we do that back on Earth as well? So I think that we're going to see some really interesting solutions uh, to problems that will come out of having a settlement on the moon. It you? sounds, uh, it immediately made me think of the movie Martian though, right? I mean, the Martian, which yeah. a lot of people took away from that, which was the, 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 innovate, the necessity or, or the old adage of necessity is the mother of all invention, right? And him being put in that situation and having to, to your, in your words, Alex, be more creative with solutions. And it's, it's something I've never thought about in terms of settling on the moon. That's, that's very interesting because it forces us to, to think differently, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that will be really interesting is that it's very likely that these settlements will be multinational. Um, although a lot of the current push to go back to the moon is still kind of siloed in individual countries, at the point that we're building fairly large settlements with large groups of people, like the, you know, just as with the model with the International Space Station, I'm, I'm sure that it will be a multinational effort. 
And what that means is that you, you then get the benefit of uh, people coming at it with their different cultural perspectives as well. Um, and I think that that adds to the, to the mix um, because people have come from different backgrounds, uh, things that people consider risky or um, normal will be different. And again, that, that will create a really interesting melting pot for both developing new innovation and, and possibly also developing some new ideas of what a society is. Mm. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I mean, you, you, you talked about resources. And obviously, one thing that the video touches on as well is the fact that there are plentiful resources to be mined, uh, you know, for economic gain potentially on the earth. Gold, silver, titanium, also obviously helium-3, uh, which is fascinating in its own right, incredibly valuable um, and very plentiful, as I understand it, on on the moon. So how much, given given that there are these resources to be exploited potentially on the moon, Alex, how much are you concerned by jurisdictional issues? You know, you talked about multinational efforts to settle on the moon and obviously the private sector and the big tech giants would probably be part of that in some capacity as well. Do you get concerned by any of these different actors or players claiming jurisdiction, claiming control, or does the 1967 UN Outer Space Treaty guard against that? So um, the Outer Space Treaty provides uh, some framework and some guidelines, but it leaves a number of questions unanswered. Um, in the discussion and debate that happened while the Google Lunar X Prize was up and running, um, it was generally felt that the Outer Space Treaty um, did not allow you to own or to you know, claim title to a specific piece of real estate on the moon, but it did allow you to own the things that you extracted from it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would allow for people to uh, make money in space. Of course, the challenge would be that if you can't you know, have your mining claim, if you can't own a specific area, what's to stop somebody else trying to come in and use that, that also that particular piece of the moon because it just happens to be rich in a particular resource. And so a lot of these questions are, are still unanswered and will probably become answered in the act of, of actually trying to do these things. Because I think like many difficult problems, um, no one really wants to spend a lot of time and energy figuring it out uh, based on hypotheticals. Um, once you've actually got something real, um, in, in the case of the moon, potentially you might have either a, an individual country or a private enterprise deciding that they are going to start mining something from a particular piece of the moon. Then everyone's going to have something to say about it. Um, that'll be, I think, when it'll all get duped out and, and, and the conclusions will come as to what you can and can't do. Of course, has, as has often been said, you know, once you're up there, uh, who's going to enforce it? Because if they don't have a police force or anything else on the moon, then, you know, what are going to be the mechanisms for enforcing any type of, of rules that are decided upon? So it could quite be the Wild West up there when, when people start getting out there and, and start trying to, for example, extract the, the helium-3 from the surface or even extract water. I got a pitch for you, Teddy, a sci-fi adventure set in the year 2040. Is it Space Cops? It's called, bam, you read my mind, Space Cops, honestly. But it is an interesting, but that's, that's a way of approaching this from a perspective of 
let's say, willful settlement of the moon, uh, driven by potentially economic forces, uh, driven potentially, as you said, Alex, by uh, expanding the scope of, let's say, humanity 2.0, learning new things, etc. But the, the late Stephen Hawking famously said, humans will not survive if they do not leave Earth. And Hawking was citing environmental concerns, you know, everything from asteroids hitting the Earth, nuclear war, et cetera, as, as reasons to, quote unquote, not have all of our eggs in one basket. How much consideration around this, this concept is driven? And, and I mean, you'd be one of the few people on Earth that we could talk to that has been at the table for these conversations at the highest level. How much of it is natural evolution of exploration and or advancement of society? And how much of the, of the consideration is full-blown contingency plan? I think the contingency planning um, was really brought into uh, a more um, popular uh, culture or popular, you know, top of mind um, because it's something that Elon Musk has talked about on many occasions. And that kind of doom and gloom impetus for settling space is is one that I understand, but I'm not sure is uh, particularly motivating for a lot of people. Um, I think the the higher goals, the sort of the more exploration-based goals and, and doing good things goals uh, tend to get people motivated more. So at this point in time, um, I mean, I'm aware of a, a couple of entities. There's a, a new company called LifeShip um, that is trying to gather DNA and start putting it somewhere on the moon. Um, and that's, that's pretty interesting uh, to kind of back yourself up on the moon or at least start backing DNA up on the moon. And that's very similar to the sort of seed banks that we see in cold places on the Earth's surface. So there's definitely an element of this, but I wouldn't say that it is the big impetus for, uh, for settlement. I think at this point in time, it's still very much what are the resources that could help us back on Earth? What are the things that we could learn that could help us back on Earth? Um, and certainly from, for example, NASA and ESA's point of view, it's very much that the moon is a natural stepping stone for learning and figuring out technologies that you're going to need to go elsewhere in the solar system. There are obviously a massive amount of challenges to, to establishing permanent settlements on the moon or even going back to the moon again. Um, and a lot of companies and governments are racing to be the first back. Could this, though, be a case, given all the challenges, Alex, of letting someone else do it first? I think of the, the canary in the coal mine um, example. Given all of these challenges and given all of these potential problems, could it be, could it be wise to let somebody else do it first and let, let them be the example of the problems, be the canary in the coal mine, if you will? A lot of the discussions around settling the moon have assumed that this will be done as sort of a public-private um, effort, that there will be things that governments and their different agencies wish to learn and wish to know, and that you know, the governments will get involved in some way, shape, or form, possibly in helping put infrastructure in place. And that once that infrastructure is in place, that then becomes the enabler for the private enterprise. You can kind of think of it as, you know, you could imagine that, that governments might put in place uh, a series of um, satellites that are orbiting the moon that allow for the equivalent of kind of GPS and communication on the lunar surface, which will be needed for anything beyond, you know, line of sight, as it were. 
um, once you settle on the, the lunar surface. And it may well be that it's, it's governments that need to make that initial investment in the infrastructure because it's way too speculative for private individuals to do that. But then once the infrastructure is there, the, the businesses and the private, in, private infrastructure will follow. So that's certainly something which I've seen in a number of the discussions is this kind of, okay, what's the best split of responsibility? Um, I think there's a, a larger question too, which is to what extent uh, governments will get involved in um, making sure that what happens is safe. Is that actually even their role? You know, if a private company wishes to send people up there, is someone going to double check that the private company has thought of everything and has, has used the right, you know, technology readiness level on everything and has done the right tests and isn't going to just be killing people? Um, that, that's another big <laughs> question because at the moment where the government uses private uh, businesses to provide services, like, for example, the back and forth to the International Space Station, they maintain an extremely careful, close watch on how all of that equipment is built and to what levels and standards and safety. So, you know, there's, there, are, there are so many things to think about here, but, but how that relationship between governments and, and private industry works um, is definitely going to be key to how rapidly this happens. So uh, let's say again, um, you know, fast forward perhaps to all these things have been taken care of. Your phone rings one day. I mean, probably be a short list of people who would be on uh, speed dial for uh, this next question. But let's say Alex Hall gets a call. You're one of the few people chosen to go up in the first settlement on the moon. Would you go? And if so, why? And if so, if not, why not? I think my first question would be how long for um, I'm, I'm, I'm a moon and back person. That's one word <laughs> moon and back. Right. Um, you want a return ticket. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. And, and that's simply, you know, because I have a family and, and I want to come back. Um, you know, if you'd asked me that question uh, a while ago before I had a family, I think I would have been less worried about the and back. Um, but, but nowadays definitely the and back, but yes, I would want to go. Um, I would want to go because of so many reasons. I would want to see the night sky without the earth in the way. Um, that true blackness, I, I've read what the astronauts said about being able to see the night sky. Um, I would like to know really what it's like to be in uh, much less gravity. I've, I've done a zero G flight, you know, gone through all those different parabolas, but uh, it would be pretty amazing to experience that for a, an extended period of time. Um, and I would just be really curious to watch the other people and see how they were reacting. I'm, I'm a, a people watcher. I, I like to look at how people are using things, how people are trying to um, figure out, you know, how to do something different um, or how to do something that they're used to doing, but now they've been given this different constraint that they don't have the resources or, or that they're in less gravity. Um, so I would be watching people and that, that would be one of the big reasons I would want to go would be to document how people are dealing with, dealing with beings among the first people to be on the moon. You gave a very eloquent answer and let me follow it up with a very juvenile question. <laughs> you mentioned that you did the uh, parabolic arc flight, the uh, zero G flight, the so-called vomit comet. Did it live up to that vomit comet moniker when you did it? It didn't. Uh, so I, I happened to have a balance problem. My inner ears are messed up. So the thing that normally causes people to vomit is the fluid messing around in your, in your hairs, in your inner ears, and creating the 
disconnect between what is what is your brain is being told and what your body is feeling. But my brain already knows to ignore that garbage. So oh, um, I was actually, I was actually pretty good. I, I, it was fine. It's, it, <laughs> it sounds was... like you'd make a perfect astronaut. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think I would be, I think I would be super excited and that that could be a problem. You know, I think there would be times where I would just be completely excited at the thought of what was happening and, and that might stop me or, or delay me from doing whatever critical switch button pushing I should be doing at that point in time. So maybe not. <laughs> well, we, we've cut, sorry, I was just going to say the, the inevitable question of not uh, what if in this question, but when if um, is, you know, again, it's up to anybody that has, an opinion and some have more educated and more informed opinions than others, you would be at the top of that list. So if pressed, uh, what would be your prediction on a timeline for when we could foresee uh, a returning, I guess, to the moon, but also be permanent settlements? Gosh, there's a lot going on at the moment. We've got the Open Lunar Foundation, as you say, SpaceX, uh, NASA. I think we're going to be returning to the moon certainly within the next five years. Um, that won't be to stay. We possess the technology to go back and have a settlement within 10 years. And I believe that if the right groups of people come together, then that could happen. Permanent settlement in 10 years. Yep. That is so exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and it is because, again, I think it's for a long time, the moon was not top of mind, right? To your point earlier, Teddy, that, you know, it was, if you imagined living during the 60s and then leading up to that incredible, you know, well, the Apollo missions and everything that happened. But for certain amounts of people, generations even, the moon hasn't been this, this top of mind subject matter that got people excited. I'm curious in your world, Alex, uh, obviously professionally, you're surrounded by people where this is a, a subject matter that's being discussed. But I'm sure at a cocktail party when you tell people, if people still have cocktail parties, that's probably a, a dated <laughs> expression. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm sure if you're in a, you know, in a group of people and there's a lawyer and an accountant and, and, a, and a banker and then somebody finds out what you do, immediately the attention turns to you. I'm, I'm guessing there's still that fascination out there, this, this excitement about the idea of exploration. Oh, absolutely. I mean, space has always been there alongside dinosaurs, the thing that captivates us when we're five years old and we never quite give it up. Um, it's, it's still captivating. It still inspires many, many questions. And for me, thinking about settlement, it, it really is going to be about the partnership that comes together because we really do have individuals and companies that could make this happen. They just have to decide that that's what they're going to do. And obviously, I've got my fingers crossed that those are going to be decisions that happen very soon. Well, you've got, you've got two people here in our studio with their fingers tightly crossed as well. Our crew as well is also crossing their, their fingers very tightly. Alex, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Where do you like to direct people to um, read and learn a little bit more about you and your fantastic work? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm Starry Brit. Um, and, uh, you know, you can also just, just Google search me and find what I'm up to at the moment. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a fantastic chat. Thanks, Alex. You're welcome. More of What If Discussed coming up after this.
Hey everyone, Richard here. We are having so much fun making the show for you. We wanted to find the most knowledgeable experts and people to interview for this podcast. We hope you're enjoying it so far. We're currently creating the next season of What If Discussed, and we'd really appreciate your help. If you like what we do here, support us on Patreon. By contributing to our show, you will get exclusive access to our behind-the-scenes episodes, you'll get your what-if questions answered, and you'll receive a personal voice message. Head over to our show notes and sign up to become part of our Patreon community. This is What If Discussed. Here are Teddy Wilson and Richard Garner. That was really wonderful to chat with Alex Hall. She did not let us down as, as a guest. Really interesting to get such an insider perspective on this on this question. And as you said, she is one of the few people in the world who's been at the table for these discussions, right? About going back to the moon, about why we're going, about what's going to happen when we get there. So I, I found it fascinating getting her her take on a lot of those questions. And and and, and to me, as much as her take and the information was fantastic. It was also great to see and feel uh, the enthusiasm and passion, childlike, I would even say, of this person who's obviously part of some of the bigger conversations that are going on in this planet about real serious things that would be stress-filled mm-hmm. and bog you down with all sorts of logistical problems or whatever, yet you can still sense the excitement in the explorer in her, the seeker in her, the child in her that that looks at the stars as, as she talked about and still ponders. And that's kind of what this show is all about. I think that's what our audience is all about. And that's something we can relate to. And then when we asked her... Like, would you go to the, like, of course she's going to say the right thing about, you know, I got kids and I want to come back and all that. But there was no question she's signing up to go. Well, yeah. And I mean, you're, I think you touched on something really interesting and that is this notion of wonder junkies. We call ourselves wonder junkies. We call what if um, uh, uh, viewers of the videos wonder junkies. All of you listening, I would call wonder junkies as well. Just that notion of overriding curiosity strikes me that she might be the alpha wonder junkie. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and dr- driven not only through passion of a young uh, of a young girl and then a, a young woman, but a career. Yeah, yeah, she's really she's made something of it, and she's doing great work in the field. And obviously, would be enthusiastic to go, but only with a return ticket. So I pose the question to you, Richard, that you posed to her, and that is, would you go? I, I mean, it's easy to say. Uh, would that- you settle there? Sorry. Not just go, but would just settle there. So that's interesting because as we know, the people that signed up for that Mars thing, yep. uh, you, which I'm sorry, that's a terrible reference, <laughs> the, the Mars thing, whatever that is. But, you know, like that's a one-way ticket. A one-way trip. And so that that brought with it a whole other level of consideration. I mean, even as I say that, a one-way ticket, I get, I, I feel that. that. That's an anxious feeling. You're signing up for that to go to Mars. It's almost implied that it's a one-way ticket to go to the moon you feel like you will be able to go back and forth even if it's not permanent to come back you'd you know you're close enough and for me personally going to the moon and having that chance again to explore to be able to go somewhere and be there for the first time and and to learn and understand sign me up you'd go i would go i mean if it was a one-way ticket if it was a one-way ticket with with some returns like you got to give me some returns i got to be able to come back here's the caveat or we have to have a wicked cable package or streaming package for live sports on the moon no but i mean i would you're so non-committal it's making me nauseous i'm certainly i'm certainly thinking that given the opportunity for real i would go uh but again it's one of those things that until it's in front of you you don't know what about you I don't think I would, and I'm I unlike you. I'm willing to commit 
to one one answer or the other. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I would go, and here's why. It's going to be very pedestrian and very lame. I love the idea of going, uh, this, fulfilling that wonderment. Here's the thing, though. I think it would be a lot of work. I think it would be a lot of work, and I, I would be up for yeah. some of the work. But here's the thing. If you go and you settle on the moon, there's never going to be a point at which you get to retire and just kick your feet up and – and not work or maybe work one or two days a week in a casual way. You are going to be doing work there seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and everything, including your survival, will be dependent on that work. And it's not that I'm afraid of hard work, my friends, but there just doesn't seem like there would be any sort of rest light at the end of the tunnel other than death if you were one of the first settlers on the moon and at the risk of sounding lazy and pathetic... I just don't know if I'm up for that. I don't know if I'm made of hardy enough stuff. So I think I will leave it to other people and I would follow their adventures and their new reality with wonderment from the confines of Earth. Your Honor, uh, I would like to change my answer. (laughs) That is a compelling case. I'm with you. We're live streaming it. From a lazy boy while also doing some picture in picture. Yeah, doesn't mean we're not curious about yeah, it. Yeah, giddy up. That's much better. I was, I was, you know, that's what I do. I get ambitious. I get unrealistic. But in all seriousness, anybody that knows me knows I'm not going to the moon. We're soft. Yeah, we're, please. We're, we're soft. Yeah, that ship has sailed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you all have your own answers about whether or not you would go, whether it would be a return ticket that would be required or a one-way. And it is certainly a fascinating question to ponder. What if we settled on the moon? Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope we'll catch you next time for What If Discussed. You've been listening to What If Discussed, hosted by Richard Garner and Teddy Wilson. Thank you to researcher Jay Moon. Technical producers Adam Karsh and Antosia Fiodur. Producers Ira Haberman and Stephen Henrik. Supervising producer Richard Garner. What If brand and channel supervisor Raphael Fay. And executive producer Steve Hulford. For more, visit whatifshow.com forward slash podcast. This has been an Underknown Media production. Want to control things with your mind? Have you ever wanted to hear colors? Or what about live forever? Well, if you were a cyborg, all of this would be possible. That sounds like a story for another what if. Coming up next time on What If Discussed.